Welcome to Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And if the opening music didn't give it away already, today we're talking about Doctor Who. Yeah, my my wife could sing a, a made up theme song that involves always take a banana to a party. Something Good. like that. Uh, Good. We're going to talk about Doctor Who not just as gushing fanboys, though admittedly but, we are gushing fanboys, and there will yes. be some of that, just like there was in our superheroes episode. Yes. Although we'll be better detailed this time. We'll have like <laughs> the right stats and names. Steven has IMDB up now so that he doesn't sound quite as silly as he did, and I have Wikipedia up so that I don't sound quite as silly as I did. Oh, research. It's incredible. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk also about the ways that Doctor Who has and has not done well at some of the things we talked about in our superheroes episode, and in particular, shooting to our strengths versus not shooting to our strengths, which is an important thing to, and, and being mindful of our weaknesses and seeking to counterbalance them, which is an important thing not only in creative endeavors, but in life in general. I think this might be a way that uh, winning slowly encounters pop culture. This is becoming a trend, and I think it might be the way that we just engage with pop culture from here on out. I think it's a good one because there's many ways that we think to ourselves every day as human beings, I am awesome at this. (laughs) This is only sometimes true. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you think, I am so good at this, and in fact, you're terrible at it. Right. Yeah, in uh, one of my friends and I are collaborating on writing a series of novels, and every now and then we'll have a point where we do something really dumb, and we'll just look at each other and say, we are really good at this. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the sort of thing that we're asking for in pop culture, is a recognition of, hey, there are some things that we can be really great at. Those are our core competencies if we're going to steal a technological term, business term. And there are some things that you wish were core competencies that you just aren't good at. Uh, This goes for things like Google trying anything social, (laughs) Apple trying anything social, um, Facebook trying anything, and (laughs) Twitter also trying to make money. These are not core competencies. (laughs) In the case of Doctor Who, we'll take the modern series as a starting point. Stephen Moffat has one core competency and that is telling really good tightly focused standalone stories emphasis emphasis on tightly focused standalone Standalone, yes continue when he took over the show running from russell t davies back in 2010 he started doing big season-long overarching plots with big detailed looks at the mythology of the doctor mostly these have been complete and terrible failures insofar as they end up being bloviating messes. It's profoundly unfortunate, but it's true, especially when you consider that most of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who are self-contained Stephen Moffat episodes. Short list. The 50th anniversary was brilliant. Things like Blink, which is probably the best known of modern Doctor Who episodes because it's such a good standalone episode. Even though the Doctor isn't hardly even in it. Which is a story for another day. (laughs) Uh, Things like the two-parters, Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead, or the one that 
the second half is the doctor dances the um, empty child the empty the child one. and the, the doctor dances these are all stephen moffat one or two parters and they're wonderful mm -hmm. the only yes. episode of doctor who ever to win a hugo award is of this season of, these, of this series yeah, sorry of new doctor who ever to win a hugo award plenty of episodes of old doctor who did forgive me doctor who fans was a Stephen Moffat episode. The Girl in the Fireplace from Series 2. It's wonderful and brilliant. Which Stephen Moffat was so proud of that episode that he <laughs> tried to do it again. And he failed. See if it would work a second time. <laughs> and it didn't. Granted, there was also a dinosaur in that episode. A so... giant dinosaur that died mysteriously yeah. for no reason. I don't think he wrote the episode where there were dinosaurs in Season it's 6. In space. <laughs> dinosaurs in space. No, actually, Chris Chibnall wrote that one. The episodes that he has done where he has been focused and narrow and just said, I'm just going to tell this one self-contained story and do it really well. On the whole, they've worked really, really well. You know, maybe they're stronger in episode, stronger and weaker episodes in that mix. But on the whole, they have been some of the best television writing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And frankly, easily some of the best episodes of Doctor Who. There are only a few even competitors amongst the rest of standalone Doctor Who episodes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is what makes it so fascinating that his overarching season plots are generally just not good at all. We should we should also not we should also mention that he sometimes writes standalone concise stories that are just kind of average. So he's not like batting a thousand. Asylum of the Daleks was really great, um, but it's kind of diminished in the fact that. Now, when you look back, it is kind of like, oh, there was a really crappy explanation for why that was awesome. <laughs> and that's part of the problem. Right. Right. He he ends up tending very much too much toward making plot devices out of characters instead of making characters out of characters. True. Yeah. So it's uh, it's interesting to us that as season eight is starting, or series eight, if you're our British friends, is starting, we have a new doctor, but we have an old companion. And the old companion just spent part of season seven being a mystery, and now the mystery has been resolved in a frankly kind of weird <laughs> slash stupid way. Slash um, stupid indeed. Especially since it doesn't seem to be having much impact on season eight, whereas I think it may would have if it had been like <laughs> a normal thing. I don't know. But it was it was partially just to tie the season together and not really to carry on into, oh, you know everything about the Doctor. That's kind of weird. Um, but anyway, now that we're starting series eight, we have a new Doctor. We have essentially a new companion because she's not the same <laughs> companion as she was in season seven. Same actress, same name, actually a character now. Actually a character now, which is exciting. We're interested in whether or not Stephen Moffat will, you know, be good at what he does, make good episodes, which is something that seasons earlier in Doctor Who, excepting season three, but earlier seasons of Doctor Who were really good at making standalone episodes that were just self-contained stories. Maybe the Queen of, of England is a werewolf. <laughs> they do have hemophilia. This explains so much. Explains so much. But yeah, there was no overarching season device for that. It was just kind of awesome. So the first episode that we saw did not get the season off to a rollicking start. 
Not very much. No, um, alas. And we will spare non-Doctor Who people the the long and complicated backstory. But basically, it just wasn't a very good episode. And then the big reveal was the same as a different episode. Yeah. Womp womp. By contrast, the second, third, and fourth episodes have all been very different from each other and very good. And real good. Not necessarily the greatest episodes of television we've ever seen. But genuinely good, genuinely well put together and well constructed and interesting character things going on. I think one of my favorite moments in any Doctor Who episode ever is in the second episode of this season where we have a companion just slap the Doctor in the face and shout at him because he's totally wrong about something. Not something we've seen very often. And that's when we knew something different was going to (laughs) happen. It was great. And then... What's even better is in the third episode, the doctor remembers <laughs> <laughs> something that occasional doctors have not been very good at um, and uh, and is, is kind of, of miffed at her the entire episode <laughs> and then realizes how ridiculous he is and has to uh, kind of make up a little bit and get better at being himself, <laughs> which is something that, you know, generally companions, friends, like traveling buddies do for each other. So... One of my favorite moments in this season so far is is when is in season three, Robot of Sherwood, where the Doctor and Robin Hood are arguing over something stupid, <laughs> and then they do something um, unexpected to both of them that is seals some particular problem that they're having, and the Doctor looks over at Robin Hood and says, "Well, there is one good thing." Clara didn't see that. <laughs> It was it was a very nice moment of this is this is a, a very human character for all that he's an alien. Yes. So it's and that's been great. We love to see that because part of the reason that we identify with Doctor Who is that he is somewhat other, but also someone we wish that we could be. So what we've got in this season so far is Moffat actually playing to his strengths apart from that first episode. And that first episode, and then little snippets that have been kind of tacked into each of the other episodes are Moffat playing to his weakness when it comes to overarching plots. But on the other hand, we did just get an episode written by Stephen Moffat, Listen, which while it's not necessarily one of Moffat's very best episodes ever, it was a really solid, well thought through, time travel using in a sensible way episode, and we enjoyed it. The question is, why does he, and... More broadly, why do we in general fail to hit the rather fail to recognize those weaknesses? Because clearly he knows that he can do this thing well. He's done it well a lot. He's done it in all those episodes we listed at the beginning, and he has a reputation for doing it in Sherlock and in other television shows he's written for. But then he also seems to think that he's really great at these other things at which he's actually not great at all. So why does that happen? Uh, well, I think partially season five's arc is genuinely great. I know there are some people who hate it, but it gives us Roranicus Badassicus. <laughs> it gives us the last centurion. It gives us an incredible speech by the doctor telling off every spaceship in existence. <laughs> like this is generally a great arc. You know, it's really great. But that doesn't mean that all of his arcs are really great. Um and so I think that we can sometimes confuse we did this one thing great this one time with we are about mm. to do all things great at all times. Yep. And that's a problem because season six is an unwatchable mess, <laughs> except for three episodes in the middle. So it's it's striking that this happens a lot. And it's not, you know, we're using Doctor Who as our jumping off point to talk about it in large part so that we can geek out for a little bit and make you all listen to it. But there's a very... Hey, we're real... not making anybody listen to anything. They are here <laughs> listening of their own accord. 
that's uh, also that's... a way that people defend themselves against bad writing, yeah. which is not good. It's interesting as we look at this that we recognize that we all do this. I mean, we're giving Stephen Moffat a hard time for his plots in series six and seven, and I would give him a bit of a hard time in series five. It had some brilliant, wonderful moments and some great takeaways, but really the crack in the wall that eats people and then a girl resets the whole universe by remembering things? Really? Hey, I didn't I didn't say Doctor Who was supposed to be a logical time. <laughs> it's timey-wimey. It's wibbly-wobbly. <laughs> wibbly-wobbly. <laughs> What are you? I mean, if you what if you, you want... children talking about says, <laughs> says the old war doctor. If if uh, if you want some some hardcore time travel thing, you can go watch Primer. Just saying, I couldn't stand the end of season six because it was like he was inside a robot. That's <laughs> no, no core writing failure. No. yeah, you're that's not like next. That. that that's next to like it was all the dream basically, like in the things that you're not allowed to do. Actually, it was a robot. No. It no, was it a robot in a dream. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, if you did that, we would just hate you. Though we agreed yeah. before the show that if, on the other hand, you did Robin Hood inside a robot, we'd be okay with that. I, yeah, we would be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, all anachronisms, I'm totally fine with. Super, <laughs> super fantastic. But yeah, these are not things that only Stephen Moffat does. And to be honest, Russell T. Davies had his own flaws and foibles along the way back when he was running the show. One of the other great standalone episodes was this absolutely horrifying episode called Midnight, which he wrote. And he did a great job of, you know, kind of fine tuning the episodes that other people wrote. And sometimes his overarching season plots worked well. And sometimes, well, he spent an overly operatic 30 minutes at the end of, well, and really just all of the end of David Tennant's episodes when, when the master, wait, you know, wait, the doctor, are you about to, enemy. are you about to critique David Tennant? Are no, you about to do that? I'm, I'm about to critique the master jumping around like a maniac and eating people. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> that, that was just, what? What? Why are you jumping a hundred feet in the air and eating your, What? You just ate those people. What is wrong with the show? <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty rough. I mean, David Tennant uh, gave it quite a go. And to be honest, I didn't want him to go either when he was sitting there saying, I don't want to go. I didn't want I him know. to go. I know. Everybody but, everybody watching that show was like, so don't. Don't, don't go. It. Don't go. But, oh, uh, I mean, Russell T. Davies had his own issues. And he, frankly, didn't seem to know what they were and this this goes really to the issue of one of the real struggles of human nature as we have it now which is we are often blind to our own foibles we are often blind to our own weak spots and unfortunately we sometimes think our weak spots are actually strengths yeah that's why we need people around who are uh we need life editors (laughs) yeah yeah I almost, yeah, that's, yeah, life editors. I think that's <laughs> going to be the name of the episode right there, yeah. which is great. That's kind of what the doctor does. But yeah, that's an important thing that we need. And sometimes we can surround ourselves by people who are just life affirmers and we do need affirmation. Um, but there are a lot of people who could use more editing in their lives, whether that's through like, you need a mentor in your personal life, or you need a mentor in your work life, or you just need all over help. <laughs> um, 
I have been all of these things at some point. Yes. Oh, I, I have too. Yeah. I was once in a club for people who weren't funny. That's true. I We christened him in the club for people who aren't funny. He did graduate. Hooray! So yeah, so there's there's no shame in saying, hey, we we need people to help us out here. We are not self-contained, amazing geniuses. The idea of the lone rebel genius is a romantic fiction and romantic in the time period sense. The uh, 19th century. Yeah, 19th century. This sort of brilliant thinker in isolation who comes up with amazing things that's just not true we know that's not true from research we know that's not true anecdotally we know that's not true in our workplace this is not true and so when we try to be these lone amazing geniuses because it is really lucrative and really you know appealing in our culture to be that lone rebel genius you get a lot of recognition um for being let's say a ceo startup there's there's a lot of temptation to just go it alone and be a maverick and do your own thing and be a leader of people with a vision and to be fair there are people like steve jobs who kind of did that but i'm sure that steve jobs had you know a bevy of people around him who were helping him and editing his ideas and shaping the way that the products came out and you know no one does anything in isolation and so the farther that we push this artistic genius which you know has been broken down in a lot of different ways in a lot of fields except art we we really need to push on that we really need to say look you need an editor you need a helper right which in the 50th anniversary episode as i noticed quite quite quickly there's actually a co-executive director yeah or is it is a co-producer yeah co-executive producer which in parlance of doctor who that is showrunner which Mm -hmm. is a way better title uh we should just start calling executive producers showrunners (laughs) it makes me way more sense so there was a co-showrunner and i thought the 50th anniversary episode was great now there because doctor who fans are allergic consensus (laughs) <laughs> there are some people who who think that the 50th anniversary episode was vastly disappointing. And to them, I, you know, I'm sorry. I We're sorry. You. You're wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I didn't come up with the allergic consensus line either. I saw it in a comic, um, ah, very nice. which I will which I will try to link in the, the notes. I liked your point about the vision of the the man alone forging his own path not really being a thing that works. And as you said, we see that both experientially and in terms of research, humans are social beings who need each other. And of course, we all exist along a spectrum. You know, some of us are more social, some of us are less social, some of us need more alone time to function well, and some of us need more party time, as it were, to so, to function well. But all of us need the people around us. And in particular, in the arts, we need people giving us feedback. That's why books have editors, because mm-hmm. you have people who can say, eh, this doesn't actually work as well. You know, I was listening to an episode of uh, writing podcast, writing excuses a little while back, and they were talking about disagreements with your editor And one of the authors on the show noted that usually if the editor has a concern, even if the editor is wrong about the way to fix it, it's because in general your readers are going to have an issue. We need people outside of us who see the things we can't see because we have limited perspective. And I find this, you know, in my experience within the church context, you know, sitting around talking about 
my own life or talking about the Bible as we study it, having people around who are not me, who don't have my particular biases and perspectives is extremely helpful. And in particular for, you know, personal growth, etc., I don't think you can do that with self-evaluation. You can do some, but at some point it takes your buddy leaning over and saying, hey man, you were kind of a jerk today. You need to stop to wake you up and say, oh, oh my gosh, I was a jerk today. Because sometimes you just don't see it until someone tells you. I think this is actually a particularly fitting episode to come come to that because one of the themes Moffat has done a good job of playing with over these last many seasons and Davies before him is that the doctor who in some ways strikes us as this very romantic figure that Stephen outlined, the lone hero traveling the galaxy alone, the more time he spends alone by himself, the worse he gets, the more broken he gets. He needs people around him. And when he doesn't have that, it's very, very bad. It is definitely a difficult thing when someone says, hey, you need help. And the natural response is to say, no, no I don't. I, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I am perfect by myself. I was given this job because I'm good at this job, not because you think I'm bad at it. <laughs> Which, you know, reasonable. But the best things that come out of whatever are deeply crowdsourced um, in the broadest sense of the term that there's a lot of people working on this particular thing and so it's it's important to us that as you are doing this thing whatever it is the reason that you can be good at what you're good at and bad at what you're bad at and protect yourself against those things is because you have those people around if you know you start to write a really dumb giant storyline that ends with a person inside a robot <laughs> someone can stop you and be like wait 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 let me tell you a story it ends with a guy inside a robot and you're like ah that sounds really dumb They're like you're about to do that <laughs> don't do that it's like the story of uh nathan that's David. exactly like, what i was thinking about let me tell you another story that's terrible take that man and kill that person <laughs> oh, that that actually was you king <laughs> oh! we, should, we should not kill that person <laughs> Yeah, this is the sort of thing we need, right? You know, we love Doctor Who. We're not saying that Doctor Who is not worth your time because it's clearly very worth your time. Even in its worst moments, it's still one of the better things on television. <laughs> yeah, don't don't take us for that for that aspect. But yeah, it's it's an important thing to note that you can have things you're good at and things you're bad at and not be able to see them. And acknowledging the things you're bad at, first acknowledging the fact that there are things you're bad at, even if you don't know what they are. And then asking people for input is one of the most helpful moves you can make for the entire course of your life, not mm -hmm. just for art endeavors, though certainly for art endeavors, but for anything. To be able to have people in your life to whom you can look and say, where do I need to grow right now? What do I need to do better right now? What is a weak area in my life right now? Oh, it's a terrifying question. It's it's a terrifying question, oh. especially because then they say things and you go, oh, ouch. Oh, that hurts. Oh. And then you have to do something. <laughs> you have to do something about it. And let me tell you, no. the best person to ask often is someone, especially if you have a good, healthy relationship. I ask my wife this question, but she knows me really, really well. And her answers oh, they're hard sometimes. Yeah. So they make me say, oh, I'm bad at that. I thought I was good at that. Oh, sad. Yeah. But that lets you that lets you grow. And we need to grow. And in the, the true winning slowly sense, growth is slow and painful sometimes. And you don't get there without learning the things you're bad at. And we've talked we talked in the superhero episode about playing to your strengths. And that's a good takeaway. But I think the takeaway here is 
learn to recognize and get help recognizing and grow in your weaknesses. And sometimes growing in your weaknesses means saying, I'm never going to be good at this. Let me get people around me who are. Yeah, I am definitely not ever going to be that great at coding. <laughs> it's just a thing. The more I try, the more I'm like, I could do something else that I would be better at and would be more helpful for the universe. <laughs> By contrast, put Steven on a dance floor and it's magic. Put me on a dance floor and, well, <laughs> you mostly just want me to step off of the dance floor. Yeah, at, at Chris's wedding, I was the one on the dance floor, not right. Chris. <laughs> he, and, he and my wife's little brother were just rocking it up for the whole crowd and everybody loved it. And I was very happily not on the dance floor because you know what that's something i'm bad at that's true he is he i don't think he'll ever graduate from the people who can't dance <laughs> it's true now i mean granted that if you let me waltz it might be a different story but that's true this modern dancing shenaniganry no thank you <laughs> yeah hip so motion that's... for losers Ugh. by which i mean for people who are way cooler than me <laughs> Oh but you God. didn't think we were going to get there in an episode oh about Doctor gosh. Who, did you, fair audience? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's the first time I've lost it in the middle of an episode. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thanks for listening to episode 1.11 of Winning Slowly, in which we talked about Doctor Who, hip motion on the dance floor, <laughs> and needing people to edit you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, so all of our content is licensed under uh, Creative Commons attribution license. So you can do whatever you want with it, chop it up, remix it, move your hips to it. <laughs> if you're moving your hips to an episode of Winning So Late, there's probably something wrong. I mean, we can put a dance beat on the back beat. I don't know. Maybe well, I you can chop it up dance... and do whatever. Yeah, and... maybe I should cut in a dance beat on the Winning Slowly theme at the end. Oh, my gosh. That'd be incredible. <laughs> yeah, just just give us credit and then do whatever you want with it. The, uh, the clip at the beginning is, of course, from Doctor Who itself. It's a nice 50-year-old theme. We hope you enjoyed it. If yeah. you like the show, you can follow us on app.net, Twitter, or Facebook, and subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I have been Chris Kreicho. And I am and will be Stephen Caradini. Get on the dance floor. I've ever lost it in the middle of an episode. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't wait. <laughs> if we have an excuse, that's going to happen. In the whole episode, I was like, yes. I know. And we're going to have to start out with the everybody, everybody. Strong bad podcast. <laughs> Strong bad emails. Welcome to Winning Slowly. I'm going to check my emails. <laughs> oh dear.